Once again, welcome to The Grove. We are glad that you are here today, and especially if this is your first time, or maybe the first time in a while if you're here this morning as the guest of someone or if you're worshiping with us online. We're glad that you are with us. My name is Stephen, and I'm one of the pastors. And uh, to get started this morning, quick show of hands. How many of you have been blessed with a natural sense of direction? God just loved you more than the rest of us, and so no matter where you are, you know where you're going and how to get to where, yep, okay. And for you other poor souls like myself, show of hands, you have no natural sense of direction. Left from right is always a challenge, up from down, and don't even start with the cardinal directions, north, east, south, and west. You're just constantly lost. That is my challenge. Um, And as a primary driver in our family, it proves to be a a complicated um, deficiency that I have. And it's complicated because... um, Despite my lack of natural directions, I have an abundance of confidence. And so that proves to be an issue sometimes when you are certain that you know where you're going, yet you don't possess the natural ability to discern where you should be going. Now, couple that with the fact that I rely heavily on GPS in my car to make sure that despite my confidence that I can trust in something that seems to be smarter than myself... But then you add in the other factor of uh, being married to a a woman who is also wonderfully confident in her sense of direction and which way we should be going. And so you factor in all of the confidence, the presence of GPS, and sometimes there is a disagreement about where we should be going and how we're supposed to be getting there. And so it proves to be kind of a bit of a dilemma because I think it should be this way. And I'm so confident that it's this way that I'm more confident in my sense of direction than I am in the GPS. And I'm like, no, Google Maps doesn't actually know where it's going. It's going to have me turn left across five lanes of traffic, so I can't go that way. And she's like, no, 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 you're going in the opposite direction. You need to turn around. It's quicker if you, you know. And so we end up in this kind of continual discussion about who's right and how to get where you want to go. Now, I say all this to say that what I experience in the car, maybe you experience in the car as well, right? There's always a tug of war, whether it's with you and uh, your phone or you and a friend or you and your spouse, or maybe even you starting to have like teenage children who are learning to drive. And this is the perfect example of how a little bit of information is dangerous. They're in the back seats telling everybody all the ways that everything that they're doing is wrong because they've been in driver's ed for a hot like four hours, and now they're the expert on how to drive. Yeah, there's all of these voices kind of fighting for control as to which is the right way to go. Now, we experience this in the car, but if we're honest, we also experience this in life. There's no shortage of opinion on what the right way to go and navigate life is. There's no shortage of input that we can receive on the way that you should be navigating through life, through the decisions that you're making, what your life should look like, how you're supposed to be living, decisions, values, priorities, how you should be spending your money, what you should own, what you shouldn't own, what you should wear, what you shouldn't wear, and it's coming at us from all sides. How many of you have recently used a piece of information in an argument that you got off of social media? whether it was Instagram or TikTok, and you weighed in with this trump card that you knew to be true because you saw it online. I'm not the only one, be honest, this morning, right? We do this. We see something on an Instagram clip or somebody in a six-second TikTok or something that came across our news feed, and we're like, ha, that's right. 
just because it happens to align with what we believe. And then we use that as evidence in our argument in defense of our certainty that we know the right way to go. Now, the problem is, is there is an infinite number of voices giving us instruction. So it's not just a couple of people in a car and a machine, but it's everybody who has access to the internet is now a self-proclaimed expert on life. And what happens, though, is as you add more and more voices, you start to get into a space that we have been in, you could argue, for the last you know, 75, 50 years, where all opinion is now equal and all truth is becoming relative. And so what's true for you doesn't actually have to be true for me for it to also be true. And so I can have my truth, you can have your truth, and that can look different than a thousand or a million other people's truths because truth is now relative. There's no absolute truth. There's no one clear right way to go. Now, some of this is natural because we are starting to recognize some of the limitations of our own perspectives and our own background and our own history. And so kind of the emergence of a more pluralistic world where we're exposed to more and more ideas has started to cause us to maybe hold a little bit more loosely some of the ideals that maybe we've held or been given or passed down to us. Some of that's understandable and natural. But when you get to a place where you don't know where to turn or where to go or who to listen to, it can be really, really challenging. Now, this doesn't matter, ultimately, when you're trying to figure out how to navigate somewhere in the city or in a new place that you've never been before or what's the best way to prepare pasta or you know, whatever it may be that you're trying to navigate via social media. But when it comes to our life and when it comes to the intersection of our life and our faith, it really matters. When we find ourselves in difficult moments when it feels like the bottom has dropped out, when everything that we thought to be certain and true no longer seems to hold, when we're left with questions that feel unanswerable, now where we turn for truth it actually matters. It's important because what we hold to be true guides what we believe. And as it guides what we believe, it informs our values. It informs our choices and our decisions. And so very tangibly, it matters and impacts our life. That's why we have to be careful with where we are turning to and how we are searching for truth in our life. Now, as Christians, we can say, okay, well, this is easy. As Christians, we just believe kind of in the Christian version of truth. But as you may recognize, that's a really, really broad net that is being cast. And you can have totally different, almost unrecognizable belief systems about what's true and how that informs how you're supposed to live. And yet it can all still be called Christian. One of the things that we've been doing in our home recently is watching these documentaries based on some of the more fringe aspects of Christianity I don't know if you've seen some of those that have popped up. There's that one, Shiny Happy People. Have you all seen that one about the Duggar family? It's like the inside you know, background into what's going on with the Duggar family and kind of the version of Christianity that they ascribe to and that millions of other people apparently ascribe to. And then you get into some of the tenets of what they believe, and you're like, how, how are we all 
you know, so to speak, wearing the same like jersey. Like that is such a different belief system than the one that I understand, you know, being Christian. And, and you can go from that side to the far other side and everything in between. It's hard to know what it is that we're actually supposed to trust and what it is that we're actually supposed to believe. And thus, how are we supposed to live? Now, John Wesley, who we have been kind of digging into his teachings and the way that he kind of constructed this revivalist movement in the 1700s, 18th century, uh, we've been digging into that the last couple of weeks in this sermon series that we're in called Roots. Because we recognize that here at the church, if we don't revisit and reclaim kind of the core essentials of what it is that we believe, it is easy to get lost in the cacophony of voices and guidance and opinions about what it means to follow after Jesus. And so we're trying to rediscover, reclaim, revitalize the essence of our faith. And the reason we're doing this is based on ultimately kind of a a prediction that John Wesley made. He wasn't trying to be predictive or prophetic, I don't think. But what he talked about and what we have been looking at over the last several weeks is he says, you know, I'm not concerned that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist, whether in America or Europe, but rather that they would exist only as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. His fear would be that we could just go through the motions and it could look like church and it could look like religion but it had lost everything that religion is supposed to be about. The essence, the essentials, the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so John Wesley goes on to say that this will most certainly be the case unless they hold fast to the doctrine, to the spirit, and to the discipline with which they first set out. And that's the goal of this sermon series. Rediscovering the doctrine, the spirit, and the discipline with which this Methodist Wesleyan movement first set out. And so over the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at some of those pieces that would kind of create the core and the essence of our, our particular kind of version of Christianity that we ascribe to, that we hold as kind of authoritative and kind of the North Star as we navigate life. And today, we're going to look at what I think helps us as we navigate life, because it forms a type of compass, so to speak. In the midst of all of the uncertainty and the kind of the labyrinth of where should we go, how should we live, who should we listen to, even within Christianity, there are tools that we can use and some that John Wesley begins to use in his own life and in his own work that we can incorporate today. Now, John Wesley recognizes this difficulty of ascribing to a certain version of truth that we all think we know, but yet none of us can absolutely be 100% sure that what we know is certain. And he named this a couple hundred years ago. He says it this way. He says, although every man necessarily believes that every particular opinion which he holds is true, most of us feel this way, despite our experience, high confidence, right? Low experience, high confidence, this proves to be dangerous He says, yet can no man be assured that all his own opinions taken together are true. Ultimately, there needs to be a strong tenet of humility that we hold because it is easy to overcalibrate on the certainty 
that everything that we hold, everything that we believe, and everything that we know is true. And so what John Wesley would contend is that there needs to be a constant reevaluation, a constant checking in with what is it that I believe, what is it that I'm holding is true, and how have I come to those conclusions? Now, this is a kind of an arduous and difficult endeavor for us in the 21st century, primarily because we are in kind of the age of clickbait journalism. We look for the headlines, right? I have friends who I will send them articles or clippings or whatever it may be about something that I read that I thought was interesting or impactful or important. And then I'll check in with them and I'm like, hey, what would you think about that? And they're like, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I didn't really read it. I just looked at the headline. And I'm like, you got to read the article. That's the whole point of sending you the article. I could have just copied and pasted the headline. Like, we, we don't take the time for nuance anymore. It's interesting because... We have this short attention span journalism that's happening, yet the emergence of long-form podcasting exists as well. And so we have this strange juxtaposition where part of us is just give me the essence, distill it down, make it quick, just let me know in five seconds or less what you need me to know. And then there's this other part of us that recognizes the insufficiency of that. And we, want, we need to talk it out. We need to parse through the nuances of the details and the specifics. And so it's hard for us to ultimately hold that everything that we know to be true is actually true and how we've come to know it to be true. And John Wesley names this. And so what he began to develop was a, a theological process of how he would begin to understand what he held as true was true. And he would check it out across a couple of different dimensions and aspects. Now, this is kind of what has been paraphrased, summarized uh, about 40 years ago in the United Methodist Church's Book of Discipline, talking about this theological process that Wesley developed. And this is what it says. It says, the living core of the Christian faith is revealed in scripture, illumined by tradition, vivified in personal experience, and confirmed by reason. The core of the Christian faith, revealed in scripture, illumined by tradition, vivified in personal experience, and confirmed by reason. This is what the United Methodist Book of Discipline says that John Wesley's theological process was. It was constructed by these four elements. And in the 1960s, a theologian named Albert Outler created a turn of phrase that would kind of describe this theological process that Wesley used to try to understand what was true and what he could kind of stake uh, certainty on as guidance for how he was supposed to live. And he described it and called it the Wesley quadrilateral. And this is what it looks like. Now, maybe you've heard of this before. If you grew up in a Methodist church, this might be familiar. This is one of those things that Methodists champion and hold up. Like, look what we came up with. Like, aren't we so smart? Now, this is what it looks like. If you start at the bottom, we're going to kind of go counterclockwise. So scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. This is kind of the essence of the Wesley quadrilateral. Now, here's the problem with it. This gives us a basis to try to discern what's true in our life, particularly as it relates to the Christian faith, how we can know about God 
and what God is asking us to do and live out in our life. But this isn't actually what John Wesley said. This isn't actually what John Wesley used. And so we have, it's kind of like Frankenstein's monster, where you end up creating something that starts to run amok and starts to actually create more problems than it was attempting to solve in the process of its creation. So Albert Outler, who coined this phrase, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, some years after coining it, had this to say. The term quadrilateral does not occur in the Wesley corpus, his body of work, his writing. And more than once, I have regretted having coined it for contemporary use since it has been so widely misconstrued. So the guy who comes up with the phrase is like, I should have never said that because of the way that it, it is being used in contemporary usage. Now let me remind you what the Wesleyan quadrilateral is. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Now there are a variety of reasons why I believe uh, Outler thinks this way about this process. First is the way that we use it. He describes a quadrilateral that has four sides, right? Or four aspects to it. What we have done since kind of adopting this process is we have turned a quadrilateral into an equilateral. And so if you've been in geometry recently, you know that an equilateral has four equal sides, right? So that all sides are of equal weight, of equal significance, and of equal importance. This is not what Wesley said at all. Wesley did not say that all four aspects of this theological process are the same. But when you treat them as the same, you start to realize how quickly you can get into trouble. Because, especially if we look at personal experience, if we hold personal experience of equal weight with Scripture, well then, if we've experienced something that might feel contrary to Scripture, guess what? It's just as valid as what's written in Scripture. Or if we find something somewhere in some church tradition that justifies some behavior or action or belief system, it's of equal, it's of equal weight and importance to what we understand. So we can begin to doubt ourselves or it can challenge our personal experience. And so you start to have this strange tug of war where you're not left in any better of a position than when you first started with. Because how do you know which one of these to use when? If you think about some of the times that we are trying to navigate difficulties in life, and we're trying to understand what God wants us to do or how God is active in the world in this particular moment, when we don't know which one of these to grab for or when they feel like they're in competition with one another, it actually isn't helpful or clarifying. And this is because we're using the tool wrong. A tool used in a way that it wasn't intended to be used isn't a helpful tool anymore. And so I think for us, if we're going to find a way forward, we're going to have to begin to use this tool perhaps in its intended purpose. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of talk about the way that this tool was actually used by Wesley. In the first place, we're starting with the scripture. Now, instead of looking at all four sides equally, what we have to realize is Wesley placed the primary focus on scripture. Scripture, he was kind of from the Anglican tradition, which holds that scripture is essential and primary, and it is the starting place for any like journey or process or 
endeavor or conversation about what it is that we need to know about life and about God. This is where we find God's revelation to us. First and foremost is scripture. And this is what Wesley said. He said, all scripture is inspired of God. The spirit of God not only once inspired those who wrote it, but it continually inspires, it supernaturally assists those that read it with earnest prayer. So God's spirit didn't just once work in and through scripture, but continues to work in and through scripture. And because of that, it is so profitable for doctrine, instruction of the ignorant, for the reproof or conviction of them that are in error or sin, for the correction or amendment of whatever is amiss, and for instructing or training up the children of God in all righteousness. Now, I don't love the kind of the colloquial, you know, the Bible is your manual for life. I think that sets a lot of us up for disappointment and failure because it doesn't answer every question. But it gives us so much of what we need to know to navigate this life, to know what we need to know about who God is, who God has created us to be, and what the relationship between us and God and us and other people is supposed to look like. It does answer those questions. Now, Scripture doesn't answer were there dinosaurs or what happened to them. Like, it doesn't answer questions like that because that's not the goal that it's intended to kind of uh, address. That's not why we have Scripture. But as we endeavor to understand who God is and who God is to us and what that means for our lives, Scripture is the starting place and has to be the primary source for how we navigate all of these conversations. Now, next, you have tradition, reason, and experience. And each of these is slightly different in the way that we use them than I think the Wesley intended. Now, with tradition, the easy thing to do is just look at the kind of the vast body of all Christian tradition. But as we've already discussed, you have a wide-ranging kind of um, examples and instances of how the church and people who have called themselves Christians have operated for 2,000 years. This is why we have some of those human rights atrocities. You have the Crusades, all of these things that have been done in the name of religion. And you're like, well, does that count? Like, does that get included in the scope of tradition? And Wesley would say, when I use the word tradition, I'm talking specifically about the early church tradition, the first couple of centuries of Christianity. Those early writings, the first kind of um, examples of the formation of the church in the first, second, third, fourth centuries. This is what Wesley means when he talks about tradition. What did the early ancient church do? What did they say? What did they believe? How did they understand the scriptures? This is what Wesley uses to inform and kind of uh, provide extra insight into kind of how scripture works itself out. So he doesn't use these independently, but he uses them all in conjunction. And ultimately, the way this is supposed to work is not kind of a four-sided square, but like a four-paned window, if that makes sense. So you would look through all four of these together, but in a certain particular order. And it begins with Scripture and then moves to kind of the early church tradition. The next you have is reason. And this is what we would understand is conscience, our logic, our ability to kind of ration and decide, you know, weighing in influence and information 
of like what seems to be consistent with what scripture says, consistent with what the early church tradition taught us. And so we use our own mental faculties that God provides us. We don't have to leave our brain at the door. And I think this is really important because you have probably had a friend or read online or had an experience where you had an encounter or someone had an encounter with a church who required all brains to be checked at the door, right? You can't, you can't challenge, you can't ask questions, you can't wrestle with anything, you just have to believe. And if you don't believe, you're not a good Christian. And so it eliminates any use of our mental faculties that are all God-given. And Wesley says, no, 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 come on. Like, God has designed us for a specific way and for a specific reason. He gives us a brain and he expects us to use it. And so for Wesley, it's what did scripture say? How did the early church understand this? As I'm thinking about this, is what, is what I'm thinking through and the way that I'm trying to navigate something, is it consistent with those things? And then the last is experience. And this is probably the one that's most misunderstood. Because when we read the word experience, we think of our own experiences. And even in the United Methodist Book of Discipline, they say personal experience. That's the way that they phrase this, which sets all of us up for failure. Because it's not personal experience. It's not anything that you've gone through in life is just as valid as scripture. You get to recall and rely on your own experiences, your own kind of way that you've um, dealt with something or had something happen to you, that you get to bring that into the conversation of why what you believe is just as important as what scripture says and what the early church thought. This was the part that was as torturous as anything for me when I was in seminary. Because we would be in a conversation about some theological idea, which is super boring and nobody really cares about it, except for the people who are in that room. And we'd be talking about where we find this in scripture and how early church writers talked about it. And then someone would raise their hand and I'd start to bang my head against the table because they'd be like, well, 15 years ago when I, and they would launch into a personal story. And it's like, these things aren't equal. I am so glad that you have your personal experience. But it is not of equal authority with Scripture. It's just not. And it's easy for us to fall into that trap. No, what Wesley meant by experience was not our personal experience of just life, but rather our personal experience of the Holy Spirit. It was our experience of God at work in our life, the way that God was illumining or revealing or guiding us in relationship to our intellect, early church tradition, and scripture. The way God would convict us in our hearts of truths, of errors in our living, of ways that we needed to change our priorities and our values. It was that type of experience that John Wesley was writing about. And so all kind of visual depictions of this theological process, they're incomplete. Kind of the four-paned four window is probably the best mental image, but to depict this on the screen, it could look something like this. Scripture is the base and the foundation upon which we have the early church tradition. Then upon that, we have our experience of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, our reason that ensures that all of these are in alignment and in harmony with one another. This is the compass. It doesn't solve everything. It's not a magic wand. But it allows us 
a process of which we can be reasonably sure that we are headed in the right direction. It doesn't mean that we'll all be in agreement on everything. It doesn't mean that we'll all see things the same way. But it does mean that we're at least on the fairway when it comes to our navigating of life and the way that God is calling us to live and follow after the example of Christ. And Wesley recognized that there wouldn't be consensus of agreement on all of these things. But he said there were some things that we did need to be in agreement on. Other things weren't as important. And this is the way that he, he said it. And I'll end it with this. This is John Wesley. In essentials, what was contained in the creeds of the early church that we affirm when we have baptisms here, like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, in essentials, unity. We got to agree on that. There's no room for debate or disagreement with the essentials. In non-essentials, anything that's not contained in the creed, there's space for liberty, for people to have differing opinions. But what was also essential and important was that in all things, there's charity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. John Wesley says it another time, uh, even if we don't think alike, may we at least love alike. And so that informs the spirit in which we should navigate this process. Now, I know that this is a little dense. I know this feels a little academic at times. But the point of this is to help us understand that like, there are places that we can turn to for guidance when we feel lost, when we feel confused, when we're navigating grief and despair, there is truth in Scripture. You know, this past week, as we've been navigating some really hard things in our church, I continually find myself coming back to the Psalms, looking at the words that other people used to name their own experiences of despair and loss and grief and sorrow, knowing that there is actually space and a place for us to voice those things and share them with God and that God's okay with it. I think sometimes we tend to be so polite in the way that we pray because we don't want to offend God or we don't want to upset God. And so I'm reminded through scripture, like, no, it is okay to shake our fists and to be angry and to be frustrated and to feel this profound sense of unfairness with how life is going and that God can handle all of that. You know, and so then as we continue to like navigate and walk through this last week, what was the words in prayers and in creeds and belief statements and in liturgy that the early church used to help people in moments of sadness and loss? What can we learn from what it says about the character of God that even in the midst of our sorrow and sadness and difficult moments that God is still faithful, that God is still merciful, that God is still present and with us. That it has been millions of people's experience over thousands of years that life has not gone the way that they wanted. And yet there is a hope that God is still present in the midst of all of that that we can cling to because we're not the first ones to go through this. And then, where do you see the Holy Spirit 
an experiential kind of manifestation. And for me, I was profoundly reminded of the ways that people supported the Tart family this week and the weeks that have happened, just surrounding them with Christian love, their small group, those who have relationships with them, Allie and Aaron on our team, just surrounding this family. And you're like, there's the presence of God. Like even when it doesn't seem like God's with us, there. I can point to it and say, this is where God is at work through his human agents and partners in this world. And then lastly, you top it all off with reason. Like, okay, we know that things happen in life that are unbearable. And we can name them to God. We can trust that we're not the only ones who have gone through them. And we have the experience that we actually don't have to go through them alone. Okay. This is how we continue to move forward. It's not a magic wand. It doesn't make all of the hurt and the sorrow and the pain go away. But it helps us know that the way that we're navigating this is on the right path. And this is the tool. And I think it is a good tool, especially when we use it as it was intended. It doesn't mean that we get to define reality and truth in our own terms. We live in a world of kind of relativism where whatever we say goes. But no, there is a greater tradition and a greater belief system of which we're a part of that is actually really helpful when we don't have all the answers. And if you're like me, I find that I have far fewer answers the older that I get. And so I'm glad that I have something greater than myself to trust in and rely on. So friends, I'm going to say a prayer for us this morning that we would begin to trust in this process, to trust that God reveals God's self throughout this process, and that even in the midst of our uncertainty and unknowing, we're not alone. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, it's in these moments of uncertainty, of confusion, of doubt and disbelief that we look for places to turn places of reasonable assurance of what we need to do next and that life is going to be okay. And so in those moments, may we first turn to your word as it's contained in scripture, knowing that it is inspired by you at its time of writing and it is continually inspired by you in our reading. May we continue to turn to your word. May we continue to check out our understanding of your scripture in its alignment with the early church tradition. May your Holy Spirit continue to work in us experientially, revealing yourself to us. And may we trust that when we can see consistency across those three dimensions, that we know we're headed in the right direction. God, theology is not something that just pastors or academics are supposed to do in rooms by themselves but it's a way of us understanding and learning more about who you are and who you've called us to be. So give us the confidence to try, to endeavor, to embark on this journey, knowing that you are leading us and with us every step of the way. We pray this in your name. Amen.